The world and its problems are too complex to explain in 140 characters. There are no simple answers, which means that uncovering truth, goodness, and beauty requires work. Lots of work. Welcome to the Grapple With Podcast, a show about digging deeper to understand history and culture. I'm your host, Harrison Waters. For the next four weeks, I'm sharing the story of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the American poet who wrote the Christmas Carol, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Like many great artists, Longfellow had to go through seasons of pain, darkness, and despair to bring this poem to the world. Chapter one, Smoke Over Washington. Bells tolled 12 somber notes across Washington City in the early December of 1863. The tones fell from the belfry of the church across the muddy and crowded cobbles onto a nearby train station platform. The bells rang out the time, but they didn't sound any different from the funeral knell that played every few hours as more dead soldiers were laid to rest beneath the ground. Many more were honored from a distance as families mourned the loss of sons and fathers and brothers and fiancés buried en masse at Gettysburg, or more recently, Chattanooga. The War of the Rebellion seemed to be turning towards a close, but oh how long and slow that turn felt, like the arc of the sun across the sky. The smoke of engines entering the yard quickly mixed with the smoke of Washington City. It mingled with the gray smoke of kitchen fires and the black smoke of the weapons factories. In the station, it merged with the many ribbons of vapor rising from pipes or cigars or the occasional Spanish cigarette. The overall haze of smoke was enough to burn sinuses, which is why the few ladies on the platform had handkerchiefs pressed to their noses. One lady with a bulbous nose mumbled something about her silk being soaked through. The smoke threaded its way through the people waiting on the platform and found the face of a man sitting on a bench against the station wall. White hair was swept back from his broad forehead so that falling backwards, it swiped at his shoulders. A white beard bristled out from cheeks too sensitive to shave, hanging from sharp cheekbones and sticking out below his long nose. The smoke made the man's skin itch, but he resisted the urge to scratch. An itch was better than the stinging ache that would make his face throb if he scratched. Instead, he busied his hands with unfolding and refolding a yellow slip of telegram paper. Open up and open left, close right and close down. Two folds opening and closing for three days had weakened the paper to the degree that a gentle pull on either end would probably tear the sheet apart. The telegram had been composed 80 miles from Washington City near Hope Church and had run through wires for another 430 miles northeast to Cambridge, Massachusetts where the dots and dashes had been typed up as words on this paper and delivered into this scarred, withered hand. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, stop, it said. Second Lieutenant Charles Longfellow wounded at Mine Run, stop. Come post haste to Washington City to receive son, stop. On the bench next to Longfellow sat a young man whose lanky but well-dressed frame couldn't have been older than 17. The face, however, and the eyes that looked out from under heavy eyebrows looked much older. War spares none, the older man thought. Subconsciously, he scratched an itch on his right cheek and winced in pain. Looking at his second-born son, Longfellow wondered if Ernest's jaw would be so firm and his mouth so tight were it not for the events he'd experienced the last three years. Just two months after President Lincoln had been voted into office, but before he'd been installed as president, Half of the southern states had cut their ties with the United States of America, setting out to establish their own union. 
a confederacy, which the other half of the southern states lined up to join just a few months later. One of President Lincoln's first acts as executive was to go about creating an army to fight the Army of the Confederacy. Since then, a war that should have been over by summer dragged on through battle after bloody battle for what was now racked up to three bitter years. Lincoln had removed incompetent Union generals and replaced them with spineless ones. General Meade, now the commander overseeing the Army of the Potomac, was indeed a brilliant tactician, but fairly inept in executing those brilliant plans, always waiting for the perfect circumstances which never came and wasting decent opportunities that would never come again. The Union had indeed won the Battle of Gettysburg in July, but at the cost of 23,000 or more Union soldiers' lives. Now Longfellow was sitting on this bench at a train station far from home because General Meade had taken the Army of the Potomac into the wilderness near Payne's Farm in Locust Grove, Virginia, for a bloody battle no one had won, a battle in which his son was wounded and now on his way to the capital by rail. A whistle blew and a new column of smoke joined the melee. Coming in on line two, Locust Grove, line two, Locust Grove, a station caller trumped past, calling out the new arrival. That's Charlie's train, Father. Ernest unclamped his jaw and spoke in a strong voice, pointing through a gap at the engine and cars slowing to a stop three lines over on the other side of the station. Indeed, let's go to meet him. Standing from the bench, the father and son threaded their way through the rolling luggage and roving passengers towards a staircase to the bridge that crossed the tracks. By the time the Longfellows had reached the bridge crossing the tracks and were able to look down on the other side of the station, the train on line two was draining itself of a regiment of medics, unloading many soldiers that, with stained linen binding their arms or legs or faces, looked like so many tin soldiers that had been broken and carelessly glued back together. A steam whistle screamed and then died away, letting the clamor of officers yelling, medics arguing, and soldiers making all manner of noises overwhelm the soundscape of the platform. Clutching the guardrail and trying not to get plowed over by the soldiers charging upward, Longfellow and his son stepped down into the chaos and confusion. Like the Israelites of old, Henry and Ernest followed the pillar of smoke towards the train further down the platform. Halt. State your business. Despite the turmoil of soldiers and medics milling back and forth, two soldiers stood as sentinels a dozen yards from the train engine. I was requested to come meet my son, 2nd Lieutenant Charles Longfellow. Longfellow held the limp telegraph out to the nearest soldier a skinny fellow with a thick set of side whiskers. Division and company, asked the other guard, a skinnier soldier with a beard and mustache, but no connection between the two. The man, who looked little older than Charlie, squinted at Longfellow while his partner looked the telegram over. First Massachusetts Cavalry, Company G, Longfellow said, remembering the details his son had sent him months before. Right, well we've got quite a batch of lads from G. You'll want to speak to Dr. Everett. Hey, the sentinel grabbed a nearby soldier by the shoulder. Go find Dr. Everett and bring him here. This man's here to collect a boy from G. Yes, Corporal. The man ran off and disappeared in the melee. Five minutes later, he returned leading a blue-coated man with sleeves rolled partway up his forearms. Dr. Everett squinted at Longfellow, his nose scrunching up and pulling his upper lip away from his long teeth. How can I help you, Mr. Henry Longfellow? Yes? The doctor nodded, waiting for Longfellow to supply more. Coughing in order to clear some of the station smoke out of his windpipe, Longfellow spoke again. My son, Charles Longfellow, was wounded at Mine Ridge, and I was told to come to Washington City and, oh, 
The doctor interrupted. You're that long fellow. Here for Charlie. Yes, doctor, I am. Well, I'm glad I met you before you see him. Is it that bad? A wave of fear made Longfellow's cheeks burn. I'm afraid it is. Touch and go, you know. There's not much hope, I'm afraid. What happened exactly? Longfellow asked. Shot through the back. Bullet hit his spine. A chill went down the father's own spine. What does that mean, doctor? Don't be overly alarmed, sir. I'm glad I'm here to prepare you because it might have been overwhelming for you. You see, if your son lives, he will most likely be crippled for life. Chapter 2. Wounds Dr. Everett's attempts to prepare Longfellow for his reunion with Charlie did nothing to calm him. Instead, Longfellow was stoked into action, pushing past the doctor to march towards the train, jaw clamped tightly, eyebrows cocked in determination, and ears deaf to the calls of the doctor and Ernest trailing behind. Crippled, Longfellow thought. Charlie, crippled. Paralyzed for life. Never walk again. Charlie. Longfellow's gut had simmered with dread ever since he'd received the fateful telegram three days earlier. Now the dread was in full boil, bubbling towards overflow with each new mental image of Charlie's broken body. Skirting around the engine crew, busy at work servicing the train, which was still puffing sighs of steam and smoke, Longfellow began the tricky business of weaving between stretchers, medics, and soldiers, all pushing in the opposite direction. Longfellow was soon surrounded by a field of injured boys, and he did his best to avoid jostling the bandaged limbs. Men and boys who ought to, by all rights, be snug at home after work in the field or store or banking house, now stood shivering with the chill of early December on their way home from the front lines of battle, grimly pleased to be away from the cold mud and hot lead their fellows were putting up with. Father? Longfellow's mind didn't pick up on the sound of this voice until he had already walked on a few paces. Then he stopped, looking around at the many strange whiskered faces, ruddy cheeks, and eyes shadowed by military caps. He called out into the crowd, Charlie? A moment's wait made Longfellow's heart sink, but before he had quite made up his mind to turn and press on, a new voice called through the noisy bustle. Henry Longfellow! Yes, you, sir! Longfellow turned to his left and saw a medic waving him over. Squeezing between two stacks of luggage, Longfellow came to where a stretcher lay slung between a set of crates. On the stretcher, a young man lay on his side with a bedroll at his back, propping him up. The face was pale, but it certainly belonged to Charlie. Between Longfellow and his son stood a medic, a thick-set man holding a wad of bandages and a pair of shears. Ah, Mr. Longfellow. Yes? Yours is a happy name in the ranks, sir. Whenever a newspaper comes, the lads and I are always happy to find one of your poems in it. Paul Revere's ride gave the men an especially good spiriting up for this last campaign. The medic paused, smiling at Longfellow. The poet nodded, trying to smile agreeably at the unexpected gift of this compliment, but still coming up short with a little more than a painful grin. I'm glad to hear that, sir. How is my son? Longfellow's voice started out in a normal pitch, but dropped almost to a whisper. His legs still feel numb, the man answered, but I have no doubt that, with time, he'll recover. The brew of dread boiling in Longfellow's stomach suddenly felt as if a bowl of cold confusion had been poured in. What? he whispered. But, sir, I just spoke with Dr. Everett, who said there wasn't much hope of my son living, much less recovering. The medic shook his head. He last saw your son two days ago, but since then Charlie's improved remarkably well. His first operation went marvelously, and I have high hopes for his second tomorrow. 
Oh, well, I'm glad to hear that. Clearing his throat again, Longfellow asks, Can I talk to him? Of course. Of course, the medic said. He was well enough to pick you out in the crowd and call out. I think he can handle a bit of conversation. Stepping aside, the medic made way for Longfellow and Ernest, who had just arrived, to draw near to Charlie's stretcher. Hello, Charlie. Father, Ernie. The voice was a bit strained and dry, but it was Charlie's nonetheless. How are you feeling, Charlie? Ernest asked. Like I was shot in the back. Neither Ernest nor his father smiled at the joke. How did it happen, son? Charlie didn't answer right away, but stared out at the soldier streaming past. Longfellow was about to ask his question again when Charlie spoke. We were attacking the rebels at a place called Payne's Farm. My division had orders to charge the enemy, but the ground was too rough and the skirmishing was too much to ride through. The southern cannons were thundering like hell and ours were firing back over our heads. We were riding to seal up a place in the front line when a pack of rebs broke through the woods and attacked. It felt like someone jammed a white hot poker in my back when I got shot. The pain was so terrible that I can't remember anything from the battlefield after that. All I remember was waking up in a field tent with a mouthful of brandy and a filthy doctor holding out a bottle with more. It sounds horrible, Charlie, Ernest said. It was. The cannons were ripping men to pieces. Charlie shivered. The conversation paused for a moment, letting the sounds of the station rush back into their perception. An engine whistled. Bells clanged. Dozens of people murmured all at once. Finally, Charlie spoke again. Perhaps you were right, Father. Right about what? Trying to keep me from signing up. Longfellow was worried again. Charlie rarely, if ever, backed down on his convictions. Ever since the war began, he had been convinced that he needed to sign up to fight as soon as he was old enough. Sure enough, when he was 17, Charlie boarded a train to Washington City without telling his father. Only when the recruitment officer, who happened to be a friend of Charlie's father, wrote the family asking for his permission to sign up Charlie did they find out where their son and brother had gone. Charlie wrote his own letter to say, I have tried hard to resist the temptation of going without your leave, but I cannot any longer. I feel it to be my first duty to do what I can for my country, and I would willingly lay down my life for it if it would be of any good. Henry Longfellow had given his permission, seeing that Charlie couldn't be deterred, and watched with a mix of anxiety and pride as his son became a second lieutenant, liked and respected by all his fellow soldiers. Longfellow had come to Washington City back in the summer to care for his son when he came down ill with typhoid and malaria. Even then, Charlie was anxious to get back to the front to continue this war for the integrity of the Union and the freedom of the black man. But now, the fire was gone. Longfellow thought for a moment, trying to pull together something to say to his son. Charlie, whether I was right or not doesn't matter right now. I suppose you've come to see how horrid war can be and how much it hurts. I've got one question for you. In your time on the front lines, have you been able to protect the life of anyone? Have you seen your sacrifice make a difference in the life of even one person? Charlie lay silently for a minute or so. Henry fought the urge to break the silence, resisting the awkwardness of it in order to let his son find an answer. Finally, Charlie spoke. Maybe, father. I would like to believe that with every reb I shot, I saved the life of someone who might have gotten the reb's bullet. But I still feel like I ended more lives than I saved. I want to believe that I'm helping make a difference, to set people free, 
but out there in the mud with a gun and bayonet in my hand and Rebs trying to kill me with their guns and bayonets, it just feels so different. So much blood. Charlie's voice sounded more strained and weak the more he spoke, until his whisper was almost too quiet for his father to hear. Excuse me, Mr. Longfellow. The medic had come up from behind Henry and was gesturing for him to step away from the stretcher. I think it's time for Lieutenant Longfellow to get some rest. Close your eyes and try to sleep, Charlie. We'll move you soon, so rest until then. Charlie managed something close to a nod and shut his eyes. Henry and Ernest walked with the medic to a crate a few paces from the stretcher. He'll be all right, but he still has a long way to go, I'm afraid, the medic smiled grimly. Longfellow coughed and spoke. Doctor, I didn't get your name. Delling, the medic answered. Dr. Delling, will he ever be well enough to fight again? Only God knows that, I'm afraid, the medic answered. He has it in him to recover and live a vigorous life, but I doubt he'll ever be able to step on a battlefield again. Why any of these boys could be expected to go back is a wonder to me, but your son most definitely will not. Chapter 3. Dreams Three days of worry and another week of hovering around Charlie as he was moved to a hospital for surgery and recovery, before moving to another train, had robbed Longfellow of too much sleep, and now his body was taking revenge. It was an established fact that the poet never napped during the day. No matter how tired he felt in the afternoon, Longfellow held sleep off at a distance until the proper time for it. The days were too full and uncertain to risk napping through something important or tragic. For years now, he had stayed awake during the day, no matter the circumstances. But today, a nap was inevitable. Longfellow had tried reading a book or two, and then shifted to penning some lines of poetry before talking with Ernest, taking great care not to wake Charlie. Eventually, however, his efforts failed, and sleep overcame him. Steadily, his lungs breathed in and out, calm. But somewhere in Longfellow's mind, in a place that was both inside and outside his brain, Somewhere in his very spirit, all was far from calm. There was dread. Like a child waiting for the monster to emerge after hearing a crash in the closet, Longfellow waited for the terror to come. First came the scream. Just the horror of that sound had made him wake with a start many nights before. Not today. His body was too exhausted for that. The scream was followed by the roaring cackle of fire. Longfellow could see the wave of flame taller than a church steeple lurching towards him, ready to swallow him up. Turning, Longfellow ran through the streets of Cambridge, looking for ways to escape while simultaneously watching the fire come closer. The flames were so bright, a yellow nearly orange, and patches of white lace leapt up from the blaze only to sink back into it with groans of pain. Running until he reached a fireplace, Longfellow stooped to pick up a hearth rug the size of a glove. Turning towards the wall of flame, Longfellow yelled and charged, raising the hearth rug with both hands over his head. As he ran, the rug expanded and grew until it was the size of a ship's sailcloth. Jumping into the fire, Longfellow wrapped his arms around the blaze, trying to choke it out and kill the flames. Fire clawed at his face again. The backs of his hands were burning again. The fire knocked him down and loomed over the poet, preparing to fall on him. Henry, it whispered. With a jolt and a gasp, Longfellow woke up. Torn from the dream, his mind struggled to settle back down into this scene, the train to Cambridge, with Ernest next to him, and Charlie sleeping on the cushions across the compartment. Charlie wounded, he thought, 
and everything came rushing back. The telegram, the busy train station, Dr. Everett, all of it. And just as suddenly, the dream disappeared. Yawning, Longfellow rubbed his jaw and winced at the pain. Chapter 4. Christmas Bells Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was putting off picking up his pen to write by thumbing through old journals, reading the words a younger self had written. The house around him was quiet. The girls had gone to bed hours ago after making their brother comfortable for the night. Alice and Edith were surprisingly good nursemaids, and although Allegra was small and flighty, she gently arranged Charlie's pillows and blankets for him. Ernest kept his brother company during the day, reading to him mostly. The children were calm and collected, caring for each other in a way that almost defied the gap they all felt. Longfellow turned the pages backwards in a journal marked 1861 until he came to a place where he had written, How inexpressibly sad are all holidays. The pain behind those words came back to him, and he couldn't help remembering that terrible day five months before in July of 1861. They were on holiday by the sea. The sun shone warmly, and the breeze would not blow. Fanny Longfellow, Henry's wonderful wife, had just trimmed some of Edith's long curls and was sealing an envelope containing some of them with hot wax. Sitting in his study, Henry had drifted off in a holiday nap content with the world. A scream woke him. Stumbling to his feet, Longfellow ran into the next room in a daze. As if in a dream, Longfellow saw his wife's dress on fire. She was screaming and swatting at the flames. Henry ran to the fireplace and grabbed the hearth rug. He tried to smother the flames with the heavy fabric, but it was too small. Too small. Longfellow then tried putting the flames out with himself, pulling his wife to himself, and clinging tightly to her. The flames burned his hands and clawed at his face. Finally, the fire died away, but it was too late. Too late. Fanny Appleton Longfellow did not survive her burns, and died the next morning. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow survived his burns, but was still in bed, covered in bandages and surrounded by nurses treating the damaged skin when Fanny was laid to rest after her funeral. Longfellow never wrote a word about the terrible events of that day. Two years later, the most he could bring his pen to write was, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. Peace. Pushing the cobwebs of memory aside, Longfellow closed the journal and slipped it back into its place on the shelf. He turned and walked to his desk and opened a lantern sitting there. Striking a match and holding it against the candle inside the lantern, Longfellow closed the little door as securely as its crooked hinges would allow. He blew out the match, drilled it into the ashtray on the desk, and sat. Words that had been piling up for weeks stood on the brink between the poet's mind and writing hand waiting to jump onto the blank page. The only trouble was that the words couldn't agree on who should go first, so Longfellow waited a moment, listening to the bells chime outside his window. A hymn written by a fellow poet came to mind and pushed the unwritten words aside for a moment. It came upon a midnight clear, that glorious song of old, of angels bending near the earth to touch their harps of gold. Peace on the earth, good will to men, from heaven's all-gracious king, the world in solemn stillness laid to hear the angels sing. Something in Longfellow's mind recoiled at the words, Peace on Earth. Heh, <laughs> it said. Peace? Not for years. There is no peace on Earth in this country. There is no peace in me. 
Below this grumble, a conviction rooted in his soul pushed through the mist like a mountain and rose to the sky. God lives, and he knows. With that conviction, the unwritten words returned, lined up and orderly, waiting to land on the page. Testing the pen on a slip of scratch paper, Longfellow began to write. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. The pen ran out of ink as it wrote the last word, so Longfellow rooted around in his desk, looking for another. Finding a full fountain pen, he filled out the emaciated characters of the last line with more ink and wrote on. And I thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. The words were hopeful and comforting, but Longfellow knew they were not enough. Sitting back in his chair, the poet remembered what Charlie had said about the battlefield, the cannon fire. Imagining the thunder of death, Longfellow leaned over the page and went back to writing. Then from each black accursed mouth, the cannon thundered from the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth, goodwill to men. A cramp was twisting Longfellow's hand. Setting down the pen, he massaged the muscles in his palm, tenderly brushing the scar tissue on the backs of his knuckles. They still hurt. When the muscles had sufficiently settled down, Longfellow set the page aside and set a fresh piece of paper in its place. He picked up his pen and continued writing. And in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. With a sigh, Longfellow wrote the last verse, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Down went the pen, nearly out of ink. The scarred hand opened and closed, the cramp loosening and fading away. Longfellow sighed again. There was still pain. Charlie was still wounded. Fanny was still gone. The war was still being waged. Henry was still depressed, and his heart was still sad on the eve of Christmas Day. Yet in the pain, Longfellow felt hope. God lives. He knows. He reigns. The wrong shall fail, and the right will prevail. Standing from his chair, Longfellow hummed with the bells ringing outside. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Epilogue. Charles Longfellow never did return to the battlefield, but he did recover his health. He was mustered out of the ranks two months later in February of 1864 and went on to travel the world. In April of 1865, General Robert E. Lee surrendered to General Ulysses S. Grant, ending the American Civil War. In 1872, Englishman John Baptist Calkin set Longfellow's poem, Christmas Bells, to music, and the song has been sung around the world with various tunes since then. Henry Longfellow went on to write a poem about his wife Fanny 18 years after her death called The Cross of Snow, in which he thinks about his wife's beauty and the impact of her death on him. Longfellow also went on to write several short poems and translated Dante's Divine Comedy into English from Italian. 
He spent the rest of his life on a project called The Christus, a Mystery, in which he examined the history of Christianity in the person of Jesus Christ. In 1882, after a few days of sharp stomach pains, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow died on March 24th, surrounded by friends and family. Thank you for listening to Longfellow's Christmas Bells, a story by me, Harrison Waters. I originally wrote this story for Christmas 2019 and didn't anticipate how much 2020 would push me to need Longfellow's poem. In fact, when I was leaving the Yad Vashem Holocaust Museum in Israel in January, I couldn't help but sing the carol, thinking about the lack of peace on earth, but the hope I have that the wrong will fail and the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. As 2020 ends, remember how Henry Longfellow channeled his suffering into the beauty of a poem. Remember, and as you are able to with the gifts God has given you, do likewise. Merry Christmas and a hopeful new year.